This is the, we're gonna start a new class today. It's gonna be fantastic. I'm very excited about it. It's called Critical Questions. <clears throat> Excuse me. Roy's getting our slides up there. Critical Questions. What does the Bible teach and why you need to know it? Now, the Bible is very long. So please understand, when we say we're doing an intro into what the Bible teaches and why you need to know it, uh, we're going to be able to look at some really big topics together and some really good things. Uh, we're not going to be able to expound on all of the intricacies of the Word of God and all of the mysteries that God unfolds to us. That's too much. This is just an introduction. So what are we doing? Just for all of us, why are we doing this class? What is, what is the process here? What we're doing for everybody who is a member of the church is we are re-evaluating how we do membership in New Covenant and how we grow spiritually. And so one of the things that we've determined is over our 50 years, 52 years of being a church together, we've had lots of different ways of becoming a member of the church and growing together and what that looks like. And so we're trying to solidify that for all of us because it's kind of changed over time. And rather than have a lot of assumptions about it, we're going to have uh, a better plan about it. So there are four classes that we do, and those classes help us to take people from learning about Christianity for the first time, which is what Critical Questions is about, and build them all the way through what it means to know the Bible and to know the Lord and to submit your life to Him and have discipleship and get to be a part of the church and grow together. And so that's what the function of these classes. This is the first one called Critical Questions. The other classes are called Foundations, and then there's a class called Equippers, and then the final class is called architecture, where we talk about what is God doing in the world and what's the architecture of the church and how does that stuff work. Uh, as you can see, these are all building motifs. So you see the hammer and nails kind of stuff that's up there because we are about building people up in the Lord Jesus, discipling people in the word of God. That's the call that the Lord has told us to do. We know that because that's the Great Commission. The Lord didn't just say to us that we should go out and just tell people about him, but that we should make disciples. And in doing so, that we should teach them everything that Jesus has taught and that we should baptize them. That's what we should be doing. And so we're all about discipleship in the word of God and building people up in the word, building up the body to do the works of ministry, that we would be a proclamation in the earth of God's goodness and glory and his gospel and what he's doing. That's what we're about. So we're going to do these classes together like this on Sunday morning. A lot of this will be review for a lot of you, which is okay because this particular class is, is, is designed for people who maybe have never read the Bible, maybe have never been to church before ever. So I know a lot of you have already looked through all the whole packet and seen all the notes, and you're gonna see in there right away that there is a glossary of common Christian terms with things like number one is Christ. People don't know, they know that word because it's said in our culture, but they don't know who Jesus is or what it means, what the Christ is or what that means. Those are common Christian terms that we use all the time because we're talking about Jesus that people don't understand. So if it feels rudimentary, dig deep down into the word to see what God is doing and how we're growing together so that you can be on board with what the church is doing as we're looking to, just to disciple the nations. Obviously, the expectation here is we're going to be teaching people who don't know anything about Jesus the word of God. That's exciting, isn't it? That's a good thing. So let's dive into this class together, and we're going to walk through it as if we are all new people together. Is that okay? All right, everybody nod at me. We're going to be all right. It's going to be a great morning. You're going to be blessed. Are you ready? Here we go. You don't have to read the whole welcome letter. It's all right. 
All right. Can you do the next slide, please, Roy? Welcome. We want you to grow spiritually. That's what we're trying to do. We don't want to just give you a neat teaching. We don't want to just build you up and have you feel good and go home. We want you to actually grow spiritually to know God, to know what he's doing in the earth, to know what your part is and how to participate. Here's what you can expect. Next slide, please. What you can expect are two sessions. I will tell all of you New Covenant people what you can expect is that we will figure this out a little bit as we go, so I appreciate your patience because those two sessions may turn into more sessions depending on how our time goes today. The goal in these two sessions is we're going to be answering these critical questions of life. Here are the four critical questions that we thought that we need to ask about life itself that every human being needs to answer. The first one is, how should we live? Is there a standard for life? How should we live? Does any culture have it right? What does that mean for us? The second question we need, every human needs to ask is, who is God? We need to understand who he is. The third question we need to ask is, who are we? Are we special? Are we not special? What are we supposed to do? And the last question is, does God care? So we all have a common experience in life. We can see good things and bad things. We can see all kinds of things. We need to know, what should we do? So having said that, we're going to be uh, looking a lot at the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles on the back table. You're welcome to one. If you don't own a Bible, I would love to give you one that you can keep. So let us know. But if you need a Bible, grab one on the back table. Susanna's back there. She can help you. How can we benefit from this particular class? Take some notes. Look things up in the Bible. You're going to see that there are lots of scriptures that are listed out, and we've listed and written out a lot of them. Uh, the Bible is a big book filled with little books, and so we'll talk about how to navigate that as we go a little bit. But start reading your Bible for yourself, because we'll find that God has revealed to us the answers to life in his word. The, last thing that, or the next thing that you should do is pray. Praying is just talking to God. If you talk to God and you ask him, the Bible says that if you ask, if you look and seek for him, he'll be found. So if you pray and talk to God, he will speak back to you. Now, you might not get an audible voice from heaven. Most likely what will happen is you will find answers in Scripture as you're looking at Scripture. So as you're looking in the Bible, when you pray, suddenly things come to light through the Bible itself, and it's like God speaks directly to your heart because he is. But sometimes we wait and look for an angel to speak to us, and the way that God normally speaks to us is through his word itself. And so the way that we should be expecting God to talk to us is through his word. I've already pointed out our little glossary of common Christian terms. If you ever get lost on anything or you're confused about something, feel free to look that up. As we're going through some of this class material stuff together, uh, we are going to be talking and have discussion. If you feel uncomfortable and you don't want to talk, that's okay. It's not mandatory. But if you have a question and we're talking about something that is very confusing to you and you're not sure, please raise your hand and ask, and we'll all grow together. Okay? Safe place. There's not going to be a quiz at the end. It's going to be all right. Everybody wants to know if there's a quiz, because my dad gave quizzes for everything. That's how it goes. Can we have our next slide, please? I have a question for you as we start today. How do we learn how to drive? How do we learn how to drive? What do you think? By doing it, OK? How does that work? How do we learn? You got to go out with somebody, right? So first, you got to have a car. Somebody's car, yeah. You got to drive with somebody so they can show you what everything does. 
legal, true. So you get a, a book of laws, of the road laws, of the, the rules of the road from the DMV, which is, which is in itself a cursed experience, walking in there to get everything. <laughs> yes, ma'am. You have to watch somebody. That's, that's true. That's really important. Has anybody driven a standard transmission, a stick shift? Yeah, not, not a lot of people anymore, but boy, that takes a lot of practice, but you got to watch somebody so they know what to do and how to do things. Yeah? Sit on daddy's lap. Sit on daddy's lap. <clears throat> That's true, depending where you live and if it's safe. It depends. Yeah, the old way, sit on dad's lap. Nowadays, if you do that down Highway 40, I'm telling you, they'll frown on it. They'll frown on that. I don't know that from personal experience, but I'm just saying. Also, if you teach your kids how to drive in the church parking lot, which is one, you're welcome to do that. If you hit something, please tell us. You know, I am saying that from experience of people who have. We had to help get a tow truck for somebody who was in the field, a poor kid, and they ruined a bunch of stuff, and the mom was like, thanks, and just left. Okay, anyway, good times. I'm not bitter about it at all. So driving is fun and good, and it's a really important part of our culture. It's how we get around. It's how we get to jobs, all those kind of things, right? Let me ask you a question. Who goes first at a four-way stop? It's the person to your right if you come at the same time or whoever's there first. That's the legal answer, right? But how do you know how to do that? Sometimes. Now, because this is an important answer, a question because it changes by what situation you're in, right? So if you got a kid pull up in a souped-up Camaro, probably they're going to go first, right? Next to you. Out of order, doesn't matter. Um, somebody who's not paying attention on their cell phone in their giant... Range Rover, probably just going to go. You know, never, have you ever had one of these awkward encounters of like, right. you, you, know, him? Huh? you have the right of way. You have the right of way. No, you should go. I don't want, okay, I'll go, fine. No, okay, fine, you go. I'll, nope, yep, I'm going. <laughs> that, you, know, you know what I'm talking about? And that's how it unfolds, doesn't it, with the start-stop? So how do you know how to react in that situation? You, you learn by being with other people, right? What about if somebody's tailgating you? Is the answer to slow down to 20? Nah. Is the answer to speed up and then slam your brakes? Is the answer to call the police? Like what, what do you do? How do you know what to do in all those situations? How do you know how to drive in the Sam's parking lot? Have you ever driven in the Sam's parking lot? It is out of control. Or any Walmart after 11 PM is like a drag strip. You got to watch out. How do you know what to do in those situations? Experience, right? And you watch people. And you can either be a jerk driver. We used to have a competition with somebody I knew of how to create a situation in traffic for your benefit. This guy I would drive with would say, we got to create a situation. <laughs> by making eye contact with somebody. We're gonna make it awkward enough that we're gonna get into this line of traffic. <laughs> like, that's a high level, that's high level functioning right there. But you can drive, and you learn how to drive in lots of different ways, and it impacts our culture. So driving in the south is different than driving in the north. Driving in uh, a city is different than driving in the country. It's different, isn't it? Here's the point, why are we looking at this? 
The way that we learn to drive is not just the book of laws. The book of laws is important. It tells us what to do. It tells us who's right and wrong. It tells us how fast we should go and what we should do. And yet, the discipleship that we receive, that is the one-on-one -on -one experience of driving with another person who's either instructing us or, or we are observing them, actually is what tells us, usually from our parents, we're generally going to drive the way our parents drive. So if your dad drove 95 miles an hour everywhere he went, probably you're going to do that too. If your dad went 20 under the speed limit and was really cautious, probably you're going to do that too. In some ways, you might change a little bit, but the four-way stops is where it comes out, isn't it? You're going to do it just like you were taught to do it, one way or another, regardless who's right or right, who's right or wrong legally. See what I'm saying? Here's what the Bible says. The Bible says that we live by the word of God, which is his law. It is the law of God, but it's more than that because the Bible is not a rule book from the DMV. The Bible is a memoir from God, his own word, his love story for life that he has given us to all people, giving not only his rules and his laws, but also the experiences of all these people that walked with God and went before us. It tells us God's own heart. It tells us about his character. We get to see, if you will, by walking with God, by driving with him, what would he do at a four-way stop? We get to ex experience God's character in a way that shapes our lives and helps us understand how to live. It also encounters people who are the real jerks in the Camaros. If you have a Camaro, that's great. But who are being the real jerks on the road. What happens with those people and what do we do? And the Bible explains some of those things, not always by saying, this is exactly the word you want to hear, exactly the way it should be written that you think but instead by the way God is unfolding his love for us and his understanding of life and the way that he's created the world, we get all that through the Bible. It disciples us, it drives with us, and teaches us what we're supposed to do in life. If you've never heard that word discipleship before, or if you've heard it but you've never had a definition, it's like learning how to drive with another person. You observe them, they correct you, you're in it together. If you crash, you're in the same car. You're walking together or riding together all the time. That's important for us because that's what our church is about and that's what the word is about, is discipling us to walk with God, that everywhere he goes, we go, and we live the way he wants us to. Next slide, please. Here's what the Bible tells us. This is from 2 Timothy chapter 3 in the New Testament. It says, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You see, God uses his word to train us, to build us up, that we might know what he wants to do, to walk with confidence, to know God's heart on things, to know how we should live in the world. The Bible is the Christian standard for life. So answering this question, this question of how should we live, we can answer that a lot of ways. One way we can answer that is highly relativist, relativistic, in that everybody's way of living is good for them and it's right in their own eyes. The Bible tells us, though, that there is a standard for life, and it's the very word of God, his counsel to us on how we should live. For the Christian, the Bible is the standard by which we live. This is important. As we look at how should we live, we need to understand that the Bible has different attributes about it that make it the book that it is. It's not just a neat collection of writings that we should look at and consider. It's more than that. It's God's own word for us that affects our heart that instructs us and helps us to live.
So here are a couple things about the Bible that we're going to look at briefly that we need to understand right from the get-go as we talk about what it means to understand God's Word. The first thing is that the Bible is authoritative. The Bible is authoritative. Does everybody recognize that picture up there? What picture is that? Batman. This is the point in the message where I try to remember what time I started and how far in I am. Okay. That's the Batmobile, the original Batmobile. It's gone through lots of different things. It fetched like 5 or $10 million in auction, by the way, to get that, to buy that car. It's collectible. But that's the original Batmobile. Now, if you're driving down Highway 40 or driving down Clarkson Road or, or wherever, 141 something, or you're in uh, 270 and you look in your rearview mirror and you see the Batmobile, what should you do? Maybe get out of the way, especially if it's the new Batmobile movies, because they might shoot a missile at you or something. But the Batmobile in and of itself is doing what? If you see the Batmobile out, what is it doing in our comic book world? In real life, it's just somebody driving a replica, right? He's chasing down bad guys. That's what Batman does. He's going to keep us safe. He's going to go and do things. How did he get that job? He created it, right? He was scared by some bats. He thought these will scare criminals. Tried the police. Didn't work. Tried being a lawyer. Didn't work. Went away and got trained by some ninjas. Came back, started beating people up. Right? What authority does Batman have to pull your car over? Zero. In fact, pro tip, if you're driving down the road and the Batmobile does try to pull you over in real life, don't stop. Maybe call the police and just keep driving to a police station would be probably good. But there's no, he has no authority. He has no authority. Now, the lessons about Batman and about being a hero are ingrained in our culture of what it means to protect people, what it means to be a good vigilante, what it means to be a hero. Lately, with all the, the different movies that have all the Avengers movies in the Marvel world or the uh, Justice League, Batman, who's usually a loner, is working with other people. So we even have lessons about what it means to be a vigilante hero with other vigilantes who also have no authority. Is that interesting? Some of them are given certain authority. That's right. That's true. We're not going to get into the comic book lore. But the point is this, is sometimes we have things in our lives, in our culture, that we view as authoritative. Batman, he's an authority, he's out there, he's fighting criminals, with no real authority. And instead, we need to realize that the Bible itself is authoritative by its very nature. It is the final authority for the Christian life. It's the final authority because it's more important than any dream we might have. It's more important than any uh, special word we get from a fortune cookie. It is, it is the final authority in our life. And the way that the Bible instructs us where the Bible differs from our own thoughts, because it's the word of God, it's his own authority in the world, if our thinking is different than the Bible, we need to assume that our thinking is wrong, not the Bible. And that means that we change our minds. We let the Bible shape us because it stands and has stood for thousands of years. It's the word of God. It's not changing. It's not going anywhere. It is what God has told us. Our thoughts and our desires are subordinate. The Bible is not just Batman running around that you can either take it or leave it. It's, it's the authority of God in our life that helps us to understand what God is talking about, what life is about, and how we should live. Here's what Matthew chapter 22 says. Actually, sorry, Matthew chapter 5, 
17 through 20 says this, Do not think that I have come, this is Jesus speaking, to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, who are the priests of the day, when Jesus was speaking, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What David told us today about what Jesus did for us is exactly true. Jesus, who is without sin, who was perfect in every way, was our perfect sacrifice, dying for our sins that we might know righteousness in God. The truth of the Bible is this. It is authoritative. What God says over our lives does not change. And the standard that God has for us and how we're supposed to live and what we're supposed to do does not alter for any human forever. And there's only one person who has actually accomplished that, and his name is Jesus. We'll talk more about him as we help you understand who he is. This is important for us because it means that the Bible is the final authority and the final word on everything we do in life and how we live. Next slide, please. Secondly, the Bible's relevant. And I don't just mean relevant in a kind of cultural way that we talk about it where we're going to stay relevant with everything we're talking about or social media keeps us relevant. What I mean is it's relevant exactly today as it was 2,000 or 3,000 or 4,000 years ago. The Word of God is relevant today in everything it says, even if the culture has changed and we do things in a different way. Uh, as an example, here's a picture. This is a picture of traffic in New York City when horses and cars were sharing the same street in the early 1900s. And there were big problems because you have horses walking a lot slower or about, you know, a little bit slower than cars at that time. And uh, maybe stopping to do certain things in the road, maybe making the road dirty. And you've got cars also doing things and people trying to cross. And it was a big mess. And cars scaring horses. And so then the horse would bolt funny because here comes the car. And remember, they're not like nice hybrids of today. You know, some of these had cranks and stuff, and they're loud, and they're backfiring and making weird noises. And, you know, you, you got that guy with his hat, and you know what he looks like? He's scaring the horses. The laws of that time when horses were going and the cars were one or two horsepower are different than what we have today. Our laws for driving today are very different than this because that picture, that scene, is not relevant to us anymore. Does that make sense? The Bible is not like that. A lot of people think that the Bible, because it has changed in a time when there were horses, because there were horses in the time that the Bible was written, surely that means that most of the laws and most of the thoughts and most of the proclamations of the Bible, they don't really count anymore. They're different now. Because now we have cars, we've got to think about it in a different way. But that's not true. The Bible itself is always relevant to all people for all time, regardless of technology or what's going, around, going on around the people. The reason for that is because the Bible is God's own declared word. He is speaking it, and he's the creator of the world, as we're going to find out later. And so whatever he speaks applies to everything because it's timeless in its own eternal divine sense. So when God puts forth a standard for mankind, that standard does not change whether we have no cars, or whether we have new cars today standards, or whether we have flying cars, it doesn't matter. It still comes down to what God has said and how that affects people. 
That's important also because much of what the Bible says does not concern itself with technology. So it doesn't matter if there's horse-drawn carriages or if there's Ferraris. What it concerns itself with a lot is the heart condition of people, how they're living and what they're doing, because God, the Bible tells us, looks at people's hearts, and he cares about the intentions of people and what they're doing, usually more than the technology that they're using. That's important. So the Bible is relevant. Here's what Hebrews chapter 1, 1 through 3 says. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, that's Jesus, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds all the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is an important scripture for us because it's telling us that Jesus himself, he is the one who created the world. He is the radiance and glory of God. He is the exact standard by which we all should live. The way that Jesus lived, everything that he did, his perfect life is the standard, regardless of the technology of our time, by which we live and we measure our lives. God's word is relevant as it is, was then as it is today because it's his proclaimed word. Now, this is important because it means also that the word of God in itself, the Bible, is important because there are things that our own minds, our own reason, our own science cannot understand without the word itself. Think about any relationship you've ever been in. Uh, your friendship is growing. Things are happening. You're becoming good friends. Let's say you've got a buddy and you, you go to ball games together and you're really good friends with this guy. And as time progresses, you want to know, hey, man, are we really good friends or are we just work buddies or what's, what's going on? And there's some kind of communication that has to take place where you can build your relationship and get to know each other. Does that make sense? Now, that usually happens by spending time together. As you spend time together, you get common interests, you become uh, better friends as you grow. What the Bible shows us is that our relationship with God is somewhat similar. That as we grow in our understanding of him and his character and what he's shown us about life, about how he's created, about who he is, about what he's done, about who we are. Our relationship with him grows, and suddenly the Bible is not just some faraway document of words that we read. Instead, life jumps off the page because we start to see the very nature of God coming through the pages. It's a relationship that we have with God as we grow in his word. It's not just something that we just look at as something that was relevant a long time ago that can give us now wisdom. It's important that we look at the Bible the way it should be looked at. The last thing about the Bible we're going to talk about before we hit our next section here is that the Bible is powerful. The Word of God transforms us. Do you recognize that car? I'm using a little car theme today for this little class. What car is that? The DeLorean. The Back to the Future car. Now, what does it do? Travels through time, right? If you had that car, you could do a lot of stuff, right? You could save people. You could go back in time and make sure that your dad marries your mom. You can do all kind of stuff from Back to the Future to make sure that things are happening right because you can travel through time. That's a powerful car, isn't it? Yeah. That car, if it were real, would be more powerful than some of the great you know, electric Teslas of today or whatever because it can do a lot more. The Word of God is not just a normal book. It's not just something that we read, that we look at, that we find interest in, that's fun, that's a neat story. As we read the Word of God, the 
the word itself is powerful to transform our lives, to shape us, to show us what God is like and how we're supposed to live. And it affects us. It cuts us down to the very heart, the very core of what we're doing. And suddenly the word becomes the very rock on which we stand. That all of our ideas, all of the foundational ideas about life and things that we know are built on the word of God and what he said about life instead of our own reason and our own thoughts and what we can see. This is really important because the power of God to transform us comes from his own word. When God declares things when he speaks, it's, it's effective. The Bible tells us that the word of God never returns to him void. Anything he says comes true. Here's what Hebrews chapter 4 says. It says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and spirit, the joints and the marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. In other words, by the word of God, we can see deep into who we really are and to what God is doing in a way that's different than any book in the earth, any teaching in the earth, any YouTube video, any great philosophy. The word of God is powerful to actually transform lives. With that said, we're going to look here for just a moment at some of the uh, at some of the ways we can know that the Bible is from God and not from humans, and then we're going to be done with our session for today. Can, I welcome Dave? can you welcome Dave up here, please? Hi, Dave. We're tag teaming, folks. You need to go to the back really quick. Go to the back of the room. Okay, here we are, everyone. I'm going to give you something that hopefully will be beneficial to you, to your faith, but also, more importantly, to uh, understanding and how you proclaim these things to other people. I have to confess this. I am not an apologist. I, I like it. I like to study it. I like to look at it. This is an overview and a broad sweep. But a lot of times we throw out Scripture as the means but then if we're talking to an atheist, if we're talking to an agnostic, if we're talking to someone that disagrees, they see that as irrational. And so the difficulty is we are using Scripture as the basis for all that we do in life. So you can go to the next slide, Roy. Oftentimes um, we, we determine that all the things that we think of and know is the foundation for our life. Obviously, if you don't have a good foundation, what will happen? It will crumble, correct? Like my, my picture of this house here. And so what you build upon matters, and everyone builds upon something. So whether you have faith in Jesus Christ, if your authority, authoritative scripture, knowledge base is your foundation, whatever it may be, you are built, every person is built on something that they have put as a worldview or a system of beliefs underneath them. And so what, we're, what we are saying is, in, from a Christian worldview, the authority that we have or the foundation that we have is the most stable and most logical thing, and we'll show you why. So the next slide, Stephen used cars, I use a bus, same thing, same, same opportunity. We go throughout life oftentimes and we look at what is driving us or determining where we're going. So an example to do this is there's so many windows in a bus, oftentimes we look at it and say, what is actually driving the bus or where are we going? And if we don't put scripture in the driver's seat, 
Usually what happens is the passengers in the bus like our emotions, our feelings, our worldviews around us, the culture around us, the music we listen to, the jobs that we're at, the giftings that we're given in the Lord, if not refined in Him, become the determining factor in how we view things. So what we're trying to say and bringing you the focus here is if Scripture is not the driver of your bus, then where are you going and what is it rooted in? And so as we move forward here, I have an analogy for you. Um, this is not original to me. It's taken from a gentleman named Hank Hanegraaff. He originally used something, go to the next slide, Roy, called MAPS, which stood for Manuscript, Archaeology, Prophecy, and Statistics. I'm going to present something to you today that's called LAMP. And what I'm asking you to do is to be like a detective. So biblical faith provides reasons and evidences. It's not a blind leap, not just close your eyes and believe. How many of you guys have seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? Yes, okay. And when, when um, he, t- he was given a little booklet that told him a lot of the things that were taking place. Do you guys remember this part of the movie? Instead of shooting. Pardon? From his father? Yes. And uh, as he's going through the things, he's coming, he's coming to different things that are going on, and he comes to the edge of a cliff. And, and he looks in the book, and he sees that he's supposed to cross the other side, but doesn't know how it's going to happen because it looks like a drop. And so he can't jump and make it to the other side. He doesn't have the ability to get there. So he looks at the book, questions whether or not to happen, and then is pressed from his father that he has to move quickly. So he, he takes a step, and when he takes a step, what happens? There's a walking bridge, a passage there. So the question is, is that like our Christian faith? Are we just taking irrationally blind leaps? Or are they reasonable steps? And so what I just want to give to you in the next 10 minutes is that Christianity and faith in Scripture and Scripture itself is actually a reasonable step and not a blind leap. Because just like Indiana Jones, he had something in his life, this little book, that revealed something and perpetually showed itself as truthful. So when it was challenged and when things happened, when he looked at it, and I know this is a movie and I'm not taking the logic from a movie, but it's an illustration to say, as it's relied upon and as you look at it, as you think about it, as you apply it, it shows itself to be real. All right, so be a detective. If you come to a crime scene, because it seems like every TV show today from Dateline to 2020 to whatever else is about crime. And, it's, and it sucks in our culture. When you come to a crime scene, detectives come and they assess things, they look at the crime scene, and they determine 100% that someone did the crime. Is that accurate? Usually not. They collect all the evidence. They look at all that's taking place. They look at the wrappers on the ground. They look at the fingerprints. They look at all the dustings. They gather all the evidence, and they make the most reasonable assessment based upon the evidence that this is the most likely case because I wasn't there and no one else saw what happened. So they listen to people, they get eyewitness accounts, they take things together and they piece it together to say, we are 99.9% sure, just like Purell. It's gonna kill all the germs but the 0.01%, right? We are 99.9% sure that this took place but we cannot say we are 100% there. I was not there when these manuscripts were written. I did not see pen to paper or hear the rhetoric the passed down generational things that took place. But as I look at evidence around me, I can make a, a reasonable assumption to say that these things are believable and reliable, and not just a blind leap. And that's where we're getting at today. So in order to get there, this is what I have for you. Um, the next slide, please. I'm going to show you a little acronym I have that's called LAMP. 
and those are your L's. I give them all to you right now so that if I miss something, you are still able to pay attention. Because if you're like me when I take notes, if, if we miss something, I'm out. Hey, can you go back to number two, uh, the third line? You missed something right there. So lamp, logical, archaeological, manuscript, and prophecy. These are four ways for us to look at how we see that the Bible is written by God and not by man. And what do they look like in those things? This is a broad view sweep, okay? And I'm confessing it's coming from a Christian worldview. I am not, like I said, I am not a historian, an apologist, or uh, any of those things. So I'm throwing this out there. It has helped me in my faith and helped me just in the way that I view things and maybe it can be an asset to you. The first one is logical. There are many things that take place in Scripture. There are many things that take place outside of Scripture that help us to show things. How many of you guys have ever heard of uh, bloodletting? Bloodletting, this idea of allowing the body to bleed out to be able to cure itself. So getting rid of toxins, getting rid of poisons, getting rid of things that happen. So in the Civil War, actually, as they were experimenting things on the field, people were shot. And so one of the ideas was to allow the body to bleed out to get rid of the toxin and things in the body to be able to heal. But then what they were finding was obviously soldiers were dying because they bled out too much blood. Okay, So there are things medically that we look at that don't necessarily take rocket science, but at the same time, how are we supposed to know things take place? What I'm going to present to you quickly is it is more logical that the Bible is from God rather than man because of specific evidences that we see in the world. Okay, One of those things is medical evidence. So if you look through the law of Moses, repeatedly we see how he has given us different, uh, God has given to Moses different laws that help protect and pertain the people of Israel, his chosen people. Some of those things are medical evidences like cleanliness, quarantining, and circumcision. Okay, circumcision represented something as a sign of the covenant in the Old Testament. But the most interesting thing is we find in um, Genesis 17, that one circumcision is given from God is specifically to be done on the eighth day. That's a mind-blowing thing. Medical evidence shows us that on the eighth day, see my little chart here, that is the highest protein peak in a human life. That is the only moment of a baby's life where they on their own would be able to clot blood and not bleed out. So thousands of years early, how was man supposed to know that? God says to Moses, on the eighth day you circumcise. And on the eighth day is when God has made man to be able to, by themselves, clot blood. Because when we go to the hospitals today, in our culture and our time, if you have, uh, decide to circumcise your child, they're usually given a vitamin K shot to help them clot so they don't bleed out. And that's necessary for circumcision, right? So this is what the Lord has prescribed to his people in, in Genesis but thousands of years before medical science and anything took place, which is an amazing thing. In the same way, he has prescribed uh, in his law quarantining things, like what's going on right now with the coronavirus. That's a scary thing for a lot of people, and rightly so. The reality is God saw illness and sickness, and part of the law is to, to quarantine people who are ill for a specific amount of time or who are unclean, that then they would be brought back into the community. And that's uh, seen in Leviticus 13. Then again, in Numbers 19, we see laws of cleanliness. Believe it or not, it took man years and years. Um, I think it was in 18... 
Wait for it. Wait for it. I lost it. 1847. There was a gentleman that ran a hospital in Vienna, and he discovered the importance of hand washing. So this idea that germs can be carried from one person to another. So it, it would probably be important for you to somehow alleviate or get rid of the germs that you're carrying before you come into surgery or other things. And so the reality that God had in his people and the code that he had for his people to receive a law of cleanliness, to clean yourself before coming back into the camp, was necessary for health, for well-being, for prosperity. God knew these things hundreds of years. You see where we're going, though. The law that God inscribed to his people as you did, if you were to take that out of our society and just allow us to try to figure things out, it takes years and years for us to understand something. You see where I'm going with that? So at the same time, we have a couple other things going on in the Bible. The next slide, please. Um, this is archaeology, but I'm going to stop for a second and just talk about there's a couple other things. Medical, there's unity, people willing to... So the way that the Bible was written over 1,600 years from three different continents... That's what this little thing on the right says. Uh, written over 1,600 years from three different continents, from 40 different authors, and three different languages, and it creates one theme. There's one continual thread that comes throughout. And you would put that up against, say, the Book of Mormon written in 1830, published in 1830. So only a couple hundred years old, written by one person. Or the Koran, given to one man in solitary, Muhammad. So we have here, it's spread out in such a diverse context that when it brings it together, it can't just be compiled by man to have one common thing throughout when it's over so many languages, so many land masses, in such a long period of time that it would communicate one solid message from beginning to end. It's an amazing, miraculous thing. So as we look at the unity, are you, would you be willing to die for a lie? So many people were martyred or sacrificed based upon not giving up on the faith of Jesus Christ. If I didn't believe it, I'd, I'd be out. If it wasn't real and wasn't held to, I wouldn't be crucified or martyred upside down on a cross like Peter. You see what I'm saying? Um, the positive impact that it has on societies, and why would you make up something like the Bible? Because it is incredibly difficult to follow. Does that make sense? If I wrote something that was truthful and by man, I'd probably say, Find any means that you can to make money and hold it as tight as you can to yourself. Lying is good. If you need to murder to get more things, to get more gain, if acceptable and pleasing, if you're that mad enough, then we'll consider it. You see, I'm not, I wouldn't really do that. You understand what we're saying, though? The institutions of scriptures and the things that's communicated throughout are not easily followed. You wouldn't make something up that is so difficult to follow logically. Okay, I'm going to go very fast now. Uh, the next one is archaeological, and the reality of this is just all of the findings that have taken place throughout time, not from Christian archaeologists. This is from any archaeologist. This is called um, a stone, and it's the earliest version of an alphabet that we have that's been found archaeologically today. And inside there is mentions of, it, of the origins of Hebrew and specifically the mention of Moses. So genuine archaeological findings. Um, if the Bible is true, we would expect it to be accurate on historical matters, and there, there, there would be evidence of some historical issues it talks about. If you want to compare the Bible to the Book of Mormon, the places mentioned in the Book of Mormon don't exist, and there is no trace evidence or DNA findings of those people ever, ever living in the South America or the places it was written. Very interesting. 
So we can actually look archaeologically and say, historically, Jerusalem is a place. If you look at Luke chapter 1 and he mentions specific people and specific people ruling at specific times, we can actually go back in history and find those people ruling at those times and saying that there is actually verification to historical accounts that these things took place. These are real places in Israel, in Egypt, in Rome, where you can find things that happened. So it makes sense historically and archaeologically. The next one is manuscript. I don't know how far I went there, Roy, but you're kind to me. Um, manuscript, there are three tests that we use in the manuscript that are historically used, not just by believers, but in, in the secular culture. And that is the time gap test, the volume of manuscript test, and the last one is geographical distribution. And these three things are pretty awesome and amazing. So as you look at the next slide, if, I'll read it for you because it's incredibly small. I don't expect you to see this. All those things in the far left side are writings of ancient texts. So you have Plato, Homer, Aristotle, all these other things. As you come down the columns, you can see um, when they were written, um, when they were first discovered, and then years between them. And so these tests, these theories, and I can print this out if you'd like to see it to be able to look at it. I didn't know how to do it. That would make it not so awful, and I made it awful. The reality of what is pro of this is proclaiming is the distance in time between an event and a writing is the shortest in New Testament manuscripts compared to any other ancient writing. The volume test, the amount of New, of New Testament manuscripts that we have, um, I think there is 5,600. 5,600 copies of New Testament manuscripts, and the closest by a long shot is, eh, wait for it, 643, and that is the Homer's Iliad. So the reality then also is the number of manuscripts that communicate the similar message. This is the most amount of copies that we have. And then the last thing is the geographical distribution. These manuscripts are found all over the place in different continents. Um, and so as you, as you can see the, the amount of manuscripts, the message being continued, the time that is written being the shortest, and the, and the distance throughout all shows that they are truthful because how could man take those things and manipulate something that was found in, say, Egypt to Rome and then be congruent? You can't, you can't change those things, if that makes sense. The, the geogra geographical distribution is so wide and long if you're with me there. Um, next slide, please. So based on all the historical tests for ancient documents, those three tests are used secularly, so they're not a Christian thing. Uh, the historical test for ancient documents, the manuscript evidence argues overwhelmingly that the Bible has not been changed. Manuscript evidence argues that what was originally written in the Bible is what we have. And then the last thing is prophecy. And um, I'd love to go deeper in this stuff with you guys if you want to grab coffee or talk or we can do it again. But the, the beauty and the reality of prophecy is it's not based upon trends. You know, you can look at, you can look at and kind of get an idea of what the stock market is going to do based upon things. That's not a prophetic statement. A prophetic statement is something outside of your knowledge, reality that human can't think of or do things. So Isaiah prophesying of Cyrus in, in his book, and then not even knowing that Cyrus, who was a couple a couple hundred years later was born in the things that event took place. The, the coolest things that we love to look at are um, prophetic statements of Jesus Christ. So Psalm 22, representing the things he did. The things in Isaiah of the um, suffering servant that represent who Christ is, 
what he, how he would die, and the things that he would even say. So the reality of these messianic prophecies being fulfilled is far beyond what human knowledge or skill can do because it, is, it shows that it is only enabled by who God is and what he's done. Because it's beyond a trend. It's beyond us knowing. It's beyond us just guessing at things. It's other than us being imparted to us. And those prophecies being fulfilled. And just a, a cool quick note is that there is um, specific and accurate prophecies are notably absent from any other religious books. So prophecies aren't, don't exist in those books and therefore they aren't fulfilled. Where the ones that we have in scripture are fulfilled, are said years prior and then fulfilled later without knowledge of them happening. So the fulfillment of these prophecies confidently affirms the divine inspiration of the Bible and that the Bible is from God. The ability for any person to be able to accurately predict these detailed events far from when they occur documented in history is completely beyond human ability, which is wild. Guys, I flew through this because I want to honor your time, but LAMP, Logical, Archaeological, Manuscript, and Prophecy, is an easy way for us to remember thy word is a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. The reality for us as we believe in this is not just a blind leap. We don't just believe it because of experience. We can actually say, Lord, you've shown us in many different ways outside of Scripture, just like general revelation, through your creation, yes, but also through your word that you are true, that what you say is true, and that we can put this as a firm foundation in our life and trust in it because it's not created by us or made up, but it's given from you. So that's how we can make these claims, not just based on feelings or emotions, but based upon the foundational truth of what Scripture means and how he's allowed us by his grace to see glimpses of those things through archaeology, through the, the keeping of manuscripts like the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Leviticus Scroll that was found, um, which was an unchanged document from 2,000 years ago. Just amazing things. Um, so I'll leave it there. Let me pray for you guys, and then I'm excited for what we'll continue next week. God, you are so kind to us, and we thank you that you have given us your Holy Spirit. We thank you that you have given us your word, and we thank you, Lord Jesus, that as we study it, as we look at it, as we submit to it, Lord, we are changed. It has is, it is proven itself faithful because it is your life-giving statements and so we just say thank you, Lord Jesus, for this place to be able to study it. Thank you for your Holy Spirit to be able to enable us to know you and be transformed powerfully living for you. I just pray for this church family now that you would encourage them. Father, they would see you, they would love you, and they'd have a fantastic week living for your glory. In your name, amen. Thank you, church. Bless you. You're dismissed.